Uh, If you have a Bible handy, and I hope you do, I invite you to open to Genesis. We'll be in chapters 10 and 11 today, chapters 10 and 11 in Genesis. Uh, Keep your thumb there, keep a little bookmark there. We'll jump in there in just a few minutes. If you need a Bible, by the way, go ahead and grab one from the pew rack. If you don't have one of your own to uh, study at home, go ahead and take one of those if you'd like. Write your name in it. It's yours. We have those for you to use, not just on Sundays. I also invite you to take the notes that are inside the worship guide here. Uh, We'll be following those basic those basic points there today, and uh, want to talk about a little something before we get into the, the passage here today. Um, those of you who are new with us see that we have life group questions or homework there on the inside of that worship guide. Well, we don't really this week, but normally we do. There are life group questions there, and, and uh, life groups are something that we've talked a lot about in the last six to eight months or so. These are small groups that are sermon-based small groups, and, and I want to talk about uh, life groups for a second here before we jump into the passage, uh, because I, I, just, I, need to, I need to tell you up front, life groups are not going away. Uh, they are not passing fancy for us, uh, and we have really not yet begun to uh, begin as well as we will moving people into those small group environments. They're sermon-based environments that are about our personal spiritual growth and, and deep engagement with the Word of God. Let me, let, me, let me tell you why this is important. Think of what normally happens in church. Think of what normally happens in church. You hear Scripture preached on, about a certain topic or, or scripture or passage. And the service and the sermon may even uh, educate you and inspire you to, uh, to leave here, to, to take on the world, to, to go be a Christian like we're called to do. And then comes Monday and Tuesday. And, and, and what often happens in churches is really you eventually basically forget what we talked about. What we're going to talk about here will, will educate you and it will inspire you to live the Christian life. And then what will happen this week is what often happens in lots of churches. You will basically forget it until next Sunday when we talk about it again. And if you're being honest with yourself, you'd have to admit that that is not only the norm for most churches and how they operate from Sunday to Sunday to Sunday, but also for many of us. It may be where you are as it relates to the Sunday morning service and to the sermon and to the passages in Genesis that we're talking about for week after week after week. And so what we want to do is we want to create an environment that battles against that norm. We want to create an environment that, that fights against that norm. Where from one Sunday to the next, what we talk about may be in one ear, out the other. Instead, we want you to continue to talk about around your tables, 
to think about, to interact with what we're doing here on Sundays. Not just by yourself and the Word, but with others in community. That's what life groups are about. And in fact, one of the special things we want to make accomplish here is that that happens in community with believers who may be much older than you and much younger than you. And and for the three life groups that we currently have meeting, that is, in fact, exactly what is happening, and it's happening well. i got to tell you, it's happening really quite well in those three groups. People are deeply engaged both with the Word of God, in other words, what we're talking about Sundays, applied to our lives throughout the week, thought about, prayed about, interacted with. And they're also deeply engaged with one another, interpersonally. I wish you could have been there, in fact, uh, last Wednesday night at the Life Group. Uh, it, was, it was deep and it was a rich discussion that hit practical areas of our lives. There was, there was a lot of laughter, in fact. Uh, there was some great fellowship. Uh, there was also a little bit of conviction, a little bit of confession, Uh, There was some real thought-provoking discussion from people of all ages. There was about a 40-year range of people in that group last Wednesday night. And so so I want to encourage you who uh, haven't yet taken that plunge, I want to encourage you to sign up for the next round that will begin in the fall. I know that's a ways away, but you can go ahead and sign up now. Uh, And and I want to just sort of say, here's why I feel the need for us to continue to talk about this and why I want to put life groups out in front of you. Uh, There are a few reasons. Number one, we are a growing church. We are a growing church. If I am your minister, you'd better get used to that. Because that is who I am. I feel it in my bones. And my burning passion for connecting people to Jesus Christ, both within our congregation and without, will that's not going to change about me. So, so I'm, I'm sort of telling you, like, pledging to you to say that I will not stop talking about lost souls and connecting people to greater depth of relationship with people inside our congregation as a part of that process. That's not going to happen. I won't stop. So... Get on that bus, grow into a disciple maker, or at least enjoy the ride. Because that part of it is not going to change. Okay? We are a growing church. Number two, that creates problems. Good problems. Number two is that growth means we have to be able to provide for the spiritual growth needs of people. More and more people, some of whom are a part of us already, some of whom are not. That's obvious, I know, that that growth means being able to provide for the spiritual needs of people. But uh, let me tell you another reason, and and this relates to those who are already here at First Christian. As we have grown... Uh, by something like 30 to 35 people, at least in our attendance in the last six to eight months, uh, in sheer worship numbers. If you, if you really think about it, in fact, though, 30 to 35 people in worship is a lot more of actual people for whom we are called 
to take care and provide for their growth. So that's, that's a lot more people, perhaps one and a half times that many. So, so for people for whom we need to provide environments for them to grow, it means as we grow, we also feel disconnectedness. I know that that's happening for many of us within our congregation already. And so I want to continue to hold up life groups as a place where you can connect with what's going on at church, with other people, with relationships, with the Word of God in an environment that is already working. That doesn't mean we do it as well as we need to. I want to say also publicly, we need to admit that we are not good at the on-ramps into life groups yet. We've not done that well. We'll admit that out loud, but we will. We will do that well. And when we do that well, 250 people will simply be the beginning of us connecting people to Jesus Christ. So, sorry, that's who I am. And I'm, I'm done sort of like apologizing for it. Uh, and in fact, this is an introduction to the sermon. Because when we come to this text today, there are things we assume about the Tower of Babel. But I'm going a direction that you may not have heard about with the Tower of Babel. I'm going a direction today that is about mission and what the people of God who were given a purpose did with that mission. And so, so we're going to see this not just in the account of the Tower in Babel in 11, in 11, 1 to 9, but also in the two genealogies that sort of sandwich that story. I'm, I'm going to tell this story from the, from the viewpoint of missions. We're going to talk about the two genealogies first, and then we'll talk about the Tower of Babel. So I want you to go ahead and, uh, and turn to uh, Genesis, uh, the 10th chapter today. And I just want to point out a couple structural things here before we jump in. I mentioned this a second ago. Uh, Genesis 10, those first number of verses from uh, 10, 1 through 32, actually it's the whole chapter there, that is the first genealogy that we'll talk about for a second. And then sandwiched in the middle of the two genealogies is 11, 1 through 9, and that's the Tower of Babel incident that we'll talk about. And then also at the end of chapter 11 is the third section today from verses 10 to 32. So there are three sections here. And, and I want you to know that, that, that I read Scripture a certain kind of way. There's a fancy, nerdy Bible term to tell you about, to teach you about today. It's a, it's a fancy word that's a great word to know. It's called hermeneutic. Now, I know that's maybe something a lot of you may not think about um, or know about, but it's, it's, a, it's a special word that, that has an important, uh, important meaning for me today. Hermeneutic, H-E-R, for those of you who are taking notes, H-E-R-M-E-N-E-U-T-I-C, hermeneutic is just a word that means one's interpretive framework. It's, uh, it's, it's your interpretive frame. It's your filter. It's your lens for how you think through something or how you read something, and in this case, in the Bible. And my primary hermeneutic today, and one of the primary ways that I have uh, re- read Scripture and learned to, is mission. One of my fundamental assumptions about how to read Scripture is mission. This whole thing, 
is directed toward a mission. Toward being sent ones. The Bible, the church, our lives, our marriages, our kids, our cars, our money, all of that is informed by how we read the Scriptures. And I read the Scriptures to tell us about who we are and why we were created. I've said this numerous times, and I will not stop talking about this. It's the reason I wanted us to study Genesis in the first place. I wanted us to see with with crystal clarity that one of the fundamental lessons we learn is that Genesis is about creation that is about a mission. It's God taking regular old stuff and giving it a divine purpose. It is God infusing regular old matter with the ability to hear him speak, to respond to his voice, and to reflect the truth that that material infused with his ability to hear has heard. It's about making known his glory. And Genesis is certainly about creation of something and that creation sinning against him. And then God recreating it. We've talked about that all the way up through this part in Genesis. But, but what is sin if sin is not rebellion against God's mission for that creation? Let me ask that question again because it's huge for where we're going. What is sin if it's not rebellion against God's mission for that creation? And the lesson today is that becoming a hunkered down, keep it to myself hoarder of the glories of God is no less than outright rebellion against God's mission for you. Let's pray before we jump in. Lord, there are numerous lessons for us today. But we ask that you would take us as people who who naturally rebel against what you have for us. We ask that you would continue to shape us and that your spirit would form us and make us into the people you created us to be. People who, who love your goodness and your glory so that our hearts move out of that place that is passionately in love with your glory being made known. Help us to read the Scriptures that way. Help us, Lord, to inform our lives through those truths toward that end. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Turn to Genesis 10.1 if you haven't already. Uh, Guys upstairs, I'm skipping the first two uh, pictures. This is where, even through a genealogy, something as relatively boring 
as a genealogy, we see God's revealing of the purposes of his glory. We see his glorious purposes even being informed through a genealogy where he talks about scattering and spreading his people. The first of these three sections starts here in Genesis 10. Genesis 10, 1 begins what we call a segmented genealogy. There are two types of genealogies today. This first one is called a segmented genealogy. For those of you taking down notes, chapter 10 equals segmented genealogy. This means we are given only limited information about only a few people, and they usually cover only a few generations. Uh, they may even skip a few people or a few generations. And so this is not like our modern-day thinking about genealogies. Uh, limited information usually only covers uh, a few generations, often skips people. And this is what we see in, uh, in chapter 10. In chapter 11, verses 10 to 32, that's the second kind of genealogy. This is what we call a linear genealogy. Uh, for the note-takers, Genesis 10, I'm sorry, Genesis 11, 10 through 32 is linear genealogy. This, this is a lot like we, we think about a genealogy in modern terms. It may not have a whole lot of specific information, uh, but it makes sure to list at least one ancestor in every generation for the purpose of linking a person at the beginning and the person at the end. In this case, it links us to the person of Abram, who becomes the patriarch Abraham. And, and it does this in a specific kind of way. So we're not going to get into all of the genealogies um, because we could, we could spend like four weeks on these genealogies. I want to briefly, though, treat these two genealogies but by demonstrating one thing that happens in them. And I want to show you that, that these, these genealogies function to point out some things, in this case, mission, uh, in these two genealogies. Consider, we've already talked about this a few times in, in Genesis, consider just the number seven in this genealogy here. Uh, these two sections. Seven, if you'll remember, it means uh, completeness uh, based on God's seven days of creation, six plus one, uh, created and rested. It says in Genesis 2 that, that God finished, he completed the work that he had to do. And so seven represents this completeness and fullness. Also in genealogies, number 10 is used a lot. So there are tons of cool features throughout, but let, let me point out one. In this table of nations here, as we call it, in Genesis 10 to 11, there are seven times ten nations listed. There are 70 nations listed in that genealogy. That is meant to convey the idea that, that all the known nations were being listed here. Now, think about that for a second. All of the known nations were being listed. Think about the implications. Seventy nations meaning to convey, I hope we're not missing anybody, is the idea there. That's a way of saying that God's plan, even here in Genesis, was for the entire world. That's a way of saying that God's plan from the beginning was for the entire world. In fact, whole earth or, or all the earth occurs five times in the Tower of Babel sequence in those nine verses as a way of reiterating that truth. Now later on, in Genesis 46, 27, as they were going into Egypt at the end of Genesis, as they were continuing to carry on God's mission, they were 70 
people in Jacob's family who were moving on. Do you think that was an accident? Of course not. So before Abram, before Abraham, which is where we'll end up today, there are 70 nations. And at the close of Genesis, his seed, his family, they numbered 70 as they went into Egypt, which is the parallel to the table of nations here today. Moses is putting these numbers together in Genesis to take care to let us know that God has a special Role. One might say a special mission for Abram and his family. The mission to bring blessing to the whole world. We'll talk about that next week. Same idea later on in Luke chapter 10. When Jesus sends out his followers, when he sends out his followers to proclaim the good news of the gospel, he says the harvest is plentiful, plentiful but the laborers are few. Guess how many he sends out? Seventy. Seventy workers. So, so last week, we talked about God's goal being his glory through dispersing his people. We're not just making this up. It is all over Scripture. In fact, a clue for where we're headed this morning and a tip for how to learn to read the Bible so it makes a little more sense for you is to start reading it through this filter of God's mission. So easily, so easily we read Scripture and we ask questions that, 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 that Scripture doesn't really care to answer because it's about us. We've asked questions that we think it should be answering for us instead of standing under its authority and saying, God, tell me, Tell me who I am. So often we have approached it the opposite of that. So, so don't, don't misread the Bible through these puny little selfish lenses that care about things other than the universe-altering truth that God is building for himself a home. The mansion in his glory is for him. So some of us, all of us at many points, need to repent for reading Scripture as if it's there to help us make it through life. It's there to tell you what your life is. So, so let's look at these genealogies today, and, and we'll do a little bit in the first one here. Look at, look at verse 1 there. It says this. It says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. It points out that, that, that sons were being born to them. In other words, uh, they, were, they were continuing the mission, uh, Genesis 1.28. They were being fruitful and multiplying. And, uh, and when you read of, of being born or, or sons or, or dispersing or, or scattering or, or being sent or going or traveling or talking with or preaching, those kinds of words, if you read it through mission, become a way of the entire scriptures telling the mission of God that begins here. So, so read those, those, those words later on for the, for the word meaning of this, this mission. So... If you look for it, it's dripping from every page. Uh, also notice here in verse 1 uh, that the sons are listed in an order that we've already read a number of times. It says Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. We read that six times in the account of Noah before this. But notice in verses 2 and 6 and 20, the genealogy lists them backwards. 
it lists them backwards, starting with Japheth, and then it goes to Ham, and then it highlights Shem. It does that for the purpose of highlighting Shem because, because through the line of Shem, we eventually get the Messiah. And so back here in Genesis, it's tracing the work of God through the genealogy for the purpose of showing us how that mission is carried out. Back to uh, verse 2 in chapter 10. It says, the sons of Japheth. Here begins Japheth's uh, segmented genealogy. And, and this just goes through verse 5 here. Just through verse 5 where it says, from these... The, the coastland peoples spread, there's another word of mission, spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. Now it ends Japheth's uh, list here with a, with a formula that is used at the end of each one of these sons sections. Language, clans, nations, language, clans, nations. We'll see that later on. Notice here that in verse 5, it says that each people had its own language. It's significant to note because when we get to the Tower of Babel later here, we assume that everything is happening exactly chronologically, as if that genealogy first happens, then the Tower of Babel, and then the second genealogy. Uh, It doesn't actually probably happen that way. In fact, don't miss this. The Tower of Babel is describing what's going on in these cultures while the spreading is happening. The Tower of Babel is the central story sandwiched to say, here's how that mission is, and in some cases, is not spreading. So the genealogies and the Tower of Babel are to be taken as a whole. Moving on, verse 6. This begins to describe the sons of Ham. And this section describes his descendants and goes all the way through verse 20. Look at the uh, end of that section from 18 through 20 there. It talks about the sons of Ham. It says, afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. Remember from last week, the Canaanites are what became Israel's worst enemy. The clans dispersed. In verse 19, the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah. You've heard of those. Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Verse 20, these are the sons of Ham by their, here it is again, clans, languages, lands, and nations. There's that formula again the second time. Now, verses 21, excuse me, 21 through 31, it tells the sons of Shem. Uh, That's a hard one, Shant of Shem. Verse 21, it says, To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. Um, If you're a circler, circle that word Eber, E-B-E-R, Eber. That's what becomes the word Hebrew. The Eberus were named for uh, Eber there. In fact, in Genesis 14, we'll see that's when uh, Abraham uh, first is called a Hebrew. It's derived from that name. Verses 22, 24, it says, Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. There's that uh, word again. And look at verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, which probably means divided. And so many people think that this is the place where the Tower of Babel happened. It's where God divided the lands, uh, for in his days the earth was divided, it says. Verse 31, these are the sons of Shem. Here's the formula again. By their clans, their languages, their lands, 
and their nations. And then verse 32 sums up this whole first genealogy and says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This idea of of tongues and, and tribes and nations is picked up on later on in Revelation. Revelation 5, 9, as it describes the song of the saints that they sing at the victory of the Lamb being slain, It confirms the kind of truth we're talking about here, that God's glory through scattered people is the goal. It says, worthy, this is Revelation 5, 9, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every, here it is, tribe and language and people and nation. Even in a boring genealogy, God is saying, this is about my work in the world. So in one sense, things are humming along. People are at least physically multiplying. They're spreading in their various places. But look at Genesis 11, 1 to 9. I want to read the whole passage together first so you get sort of a a landscape, a, a large view of this account of the Tower of Babel, and then we'll jump back at verse 1. It says this, Genesis 11, 1 to 9, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its name, I'm sorry, with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Verse five. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Jump back to verse 1 there. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. That word translated here as earth is the same word as land. And this is, if you'll remember, this is happening at least before, maybe during the genealogy in in chapter 10. And it says, verse 2, As people migrated from the east, migrated is another spreading kind of word, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. I think they settled. I think they settled not just to plant some roots, Nothing wrong with planting roots. It's the purpose for which we plant roots that is the issue, as we'll see in a second here. I think they settled from their mission. I think they settled 
from God's goal for them. I think they forgot God's instruction, go bear fruit for me. Verses 3 to 4 back this claim. It says, they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen or, or, or tar for mortar. And then they said, come, this says it again, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. The tower was probably a pagan monument that's called a ziggurat, Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T, if you want to look it up. Uh, there are lots of cool lessons there. Um, but, but, but about 30 of these ziggurats had been found in that area in about 2200 B.C., which is about the time we're talking about here. So, So it says, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And it says, and the Lord came down. They were saying, come let us. And then verse 5, on the contrary, it says, the Lord came down. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, one language. This is the beginning of what they will do. Nothing they propose will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. And he's saying this in contrast to them saying, come, let us build. He says, come, let us go down and confuse the language. So the Lord dispersed, it's another mission word, dispersed them from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. If the mission was God's glory then perhaps verse 8 is more an act of grace than it is of judgment. Lest they, lest they not become dispersed. Lest they not carry out God's mission for them. Lest they not ensure that His glory was their goal. To make sure that it happened, God scattered them. Therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. That was just a means to the end of dispersing them over the face of the earth. Look at verses four and three and four again for just a second. It says, Come let us. It says, Come let us two times. Come let us make. Come let us build. They're they're coming together, they're joining together to make something. And while there's certainly nothing inherently wrong with coming together to do something, one might think what we do here is coming together to do something, but it's that for which we come together that is the goal, that is the real problem here. It's the not coming together for the purpose of God's glory, that is the problem. It says, let us build ourselves a city. Let us make a name for ourselves. Why? Verse 4, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Don't miss this. Their rebellion was sinful rebellion against God's mission for their lives. They forgot about mission. They thought it was about them. Do you think this is about The world out there, (laughs) he calls them here his children. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. They They were going a direction God did not want them to go, and so he doesn't even call them his children. He says they're children of man. I think this is a warning for us. They forgot it was about the mission. How 
often has the bloated, fat on luxury, self-centered church in America said, come, let us build. Come, let us pool together all this stuff, all our resources, all these people so that we can make a name for ourselves instead of making and building and coming together so that the mission continues, so that countless souls all around us will know the glory of God. How often have we come together and gazed at ourselves and said, done, we're done, this is it. How often have we all participated in short-sighted, promiscuously in love with ourselves mission? Instead of something bigger and better than our little lives about us. We are so blind, we think the Tower of Babel is about all those people who reject God. And it is, but it's a warning for us. It's a warning for us far more than we think. It's a warning of us of our own personal involvement in rebellion against God's mission for our lives. We are far more like these people than we think when we hunker down and we hoard it to build up our own kingdoms to pacify ourselves. And that obscures our vision. Obscures our vision for the reality of God's mission for lost souls. We don't even see it. Come, let us make, let us build. Come, let us sit on the couch and watch TV and entertain and insulate ourselves so we don't have to see millions of people in our very world today dying without a Savior. Let's just get happy on Hulu and sit around on Netflix. Come, let us sit on the porch, sip lemonade, and talk about how miserable they are. You know, that's, that's a lot of what we do. So that we can feel better about ourselves. So that we can self-righteously judge from afar without having to lift a finger or so much as talk to someone who doesn't vote like me or look like me. If, if just... Half the pew goers, if half of the church goers in America had half as much urgency about the mission of God as they do their own urgency for TV, NASCAR, football, pets, whatever becomes an idol. If we had half the urgency for the mission of God in our lives that we do for all those things that become idols in our lives, towers of babels in our lives, we would have an unstoppable force for God's glory being made known in people's lives. You couldn't contain it. And I can prove that this is the case for us. With a statistic I came across this week that proves that we American Christians have so 
blinded ourselves to the mission of God. We don't even see it or care about it or know it for our own lives. It is a staggering number of people who are currently unengaged in the world. That means no Christian missionary exists in that people group. There are 1,568 distinct people groups. 1,568 distinct people groups in the world where there is zero Christian missionary presence. 4,200 years after the warning of the Tower of Babel, that should not be. So here we are. Something about be fruitful and multiply has not yet sunk in. Why, with, with all the knowledge all the wealth, all the technology, millions, millions of people claiming to follow Christ. How is it that we have not yet sent 1,568 missionaries 4,200 years after the Tower of Babel? The proof, the proof that we have ignored God's mission isn't because we don't have enough resources. It's not because there's not enough money or people. It's because we have too much. Promiscuously in love with the things of the world that keep us from being sent ones. Our own idols, bought with the abundance graciously given to us by God, meant for mission. Our idols are proof we've ignored his mission. We're in love with our towers. We're in love with them. There are idols. We hold them close, and they obscure us from becoming people created in the image of God to make known His glory. They hinder us in all sorts of ways we have not yet begun to even see. We've hoarded it. Hoarded it. some level of repentance for all of us has to go on. You don't have to walk up and (laughs) flail yourself on the steps here before me. No. (laughs) No. But all of us at some level have got to stand before God and say, "I I have loved my idols, so much that I have forgotten your mission for my life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we all stand.
condemned. As proven by the way we've lived our lives, Father, we we stand before you with no word of hope. And yet, Lord, we know from, from the witness of Scripture, from the witness and testimony of faithful believers who have gone before us. We, we know because in the perfect sinless life you, you led for us on our behalf as the slain lamb. The only leg on which we have to stand is your goodness, your perfections, your grace. So, Father, we just, we just ask that before you, you would make of this body of believers, people who are so in love with you that the notion of hoarding you to ourselves is absolutely so abhorrent that we can't but continue to become the kind of people who make known your glory by what you've given us in resources of time and money and skills and abilities. Father, we have to admit before you that we have hoarded these to ourselves and used them for our purposes. And we ask that you would continue to make of us people who love to make known your goodness and your glory because that's the mission. That's why you made us. Help us to more and more be people like that as we are shaped by the words that we read, by the the songs that we sing, by the work of your Spirit in our hearts. Father, continue to commit us Help us to set aside our lives for your purposes instead of our own. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.